The intersection of Fifth and Jackson on a winter day here in 2022 in Gary, Indiana. This is a city once labeled the murder capital of the United States. This intersection is at the center of a dark history, one that most people don't know, not even the people here or the people anywhere else. This isn't the first time I've stood at this intersection. I was here almost 14 years ago when I first tried to tell this story about a remarkable athlete largely lost to memory. So much promise, you know. There was so much brilliance. There was so much giving. I think of all the people who could have been touched and had their lives changed by him that never had that opportunity. Some ball players are born to play the game. And I think that it was a tradition in my family for ball players, and I'm just carrying it out right now. In the more than 150-year history of Major League Baseball, only one player has ever been murdered during a season. This is the story of that player, of that murder, and the story of what happened to the man who murdered him. For Fox Sports Audio, I'm Tom Rinaldi, and this is Wesley, the story of the life, career, and death of Lyman Wesley Bostock. to me as a higher paid ball player. Hope they relate to me as Lyman Bostock of the California Angels. Lyman Bostock, star outfielder, shot to death late last night in Gary, Indiana. Definitely Hall of Fame, no doubt in my mind. I think the people here appreciate me a lot more because I'm from the area and I hope I can please the people here. Do you hear Lyman's gonna get back a salary? He donated it to a church near his home in LA. The cause was more important than the sport. That's what it was really all about. A 31-year-old man has been charged with the murder of baseball star Lyman Bostock. A classic case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mr. Smith did it and got away with murder. I don't know that he would say that he was sorry for what happened. Excuse me, Leonard, I'm Tom Rinaldi. I have no comment. Goodbye. It was just the finality of it. It's like walking into a brick wall. He was a very simple, low-key person. He just never changed. He was always Wesley. Whenever people are talking about miscarriages of justice, I'm always like, I got a story for you. Episode one, we call him Wesley. Anthony Jones is Lyman Bostock's first cousin. The two grew up a block away from each other in Los Angeles. It gets me upset and mad about, you know, how life goes on and, you know, he is in the wrong place at the wrong time. I wish he wasn't in the wrong place at the wrong time. I wish that he could have lived a long and fruitful life. The place Jones is talking about is 2,000 miles away from LA. It's the intersection of 5th and Jackson in Gary, Indiana. 
After the game, Lyman Bostock came to Gary, Indiana for an evening of socializing. He had lived here once and wanted to visit friends and relatives. And the time is a September night in 1978. It's the night Lyman Bostock crossed paths with a man he'd never met before. A man who pointed a shotgun at him and fired. That man is Leonard Smith, who would live out his life just six blocks away from where he'd murdered Lyman. And that's where I found him the first time I told the story. Excuse me. Leonard? Yes. I'm Tom Rinaldi. What's up? I'm a reporter with ESPN. I don't want to talk to you. I have no comment. Thank you. Goodbye. Leonard. Goodbye. Leonard. He didn't even know who Lyman Bostock was. Never heard the name. Didn't follow baseball. It's just so sad. That's Jack Crawford, who would prosecute the case against Leonard Smith, a case that made national headlines and led to changes in state law. But that comes later. Leonard Smith will have his role. The awful consequences of Smith's crime and its devastating aftermath can't be denied or ignored, and shouldn't be. The crime will forever be a part of the story. But this story's center, its heart, isn't about a death. It's about a life, Lyman Bostock's life, the times he grew up in, which echo these times in some powerful ways, the bonds he forged with people who can still weep at the pull of his memory, the decisions he made, which shaped his path and the talent he flashed that forged a career leading him to the edge of stardom. A crime will always be a part of the story, but who the crime took away, that's the largest part. So the story begins and ends with the life and career of the man who was killed. I made a decision and it was a very tough decision because, you know, the pinstripes, uh, very tempting, big city, the big apple is where most ballplayers like to be. and. I took a lot of thought. I was leaning towards the pinstripes instead of halo, but I think my mother and my family had a lot to do with it. That's Lyman Bostock at a press conference announcing his huge signing with the California Angels. It was a proud day for a man beloved by nearly all who encountered him. He was a likable man, a man who genuinely enjoyed going out onto a baseball field to play for a living. It was no publicity stunt when he got off to a terrible start last April and insisted he not be paid his free agent salary. He was appreciated by his teammates, like the Hall of Famer, Rod Carew. He told me once, he says, I'm going to catch you. And I said, I'm not going to make it easy. He wanted to out hit me in the worst way. And we've just challenged each other each day. And the Hall of Famer. George Brett. If he didn't have that tragedy appear in his life, I mean, and he maintained the same level of consistency with a bat in his hand, we could be talking about, you know, a Hall of Fame player, a 3,000 hit guy, and just one of the greatest players ever to play the game. And batting champion and all-star, Carney Lansford. The first time I ever saw Lyman was probably my first or second day of spring training 
and I showed up early before the workout to take some swings off the pitching machine and actually Lyman was already in there hitting and I remember just watching him take some swings and thinking wow what a gorgeous swing this guy has I had no idea who it was If others didn't know who he was, Lyman Bostock knew. He had a strong sense of his identity, his pedigree, and his purpose from the start of his life. The son of Lyman Bostock Sr., a Negro Leagues player in the 1940s who spent time around the likes of Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays, Lyman Jr. had no real relationship with his father. Here's Lyman's aunt, Elsie Foster. He was not in his life. That's why they moved on, you know, because he wasn't in his life. Every once in a while, he would show up, but that was it. He had people around him that cared and that did for him. So it wasn't a whole lot of missing his father. I don't guess if you've never been around him, you don't never know. Lyman was never referred to as a junior. He was Lyman, or as some family members called him, Wesley, his middle name. Again, Anthony Jones, Lyman's cousin. I, you know, I always heard about my uncle and how good he played baseball. Between my mother and my, my auntie, we call him Wesley. Born in Birmingham, Lyman and his mother Annie Pearl moved north to Gary, Indiana in 1954 when Lyman was just four years old. Carl Crawford is Lyman's cousin who was born on the same day in the same hospital as Lyman. When they left Birmingham, they left and went to Gary, Indiana for my uncles to work in the steel mill. But by her being a single mother and had all my uncles and aunts telling her what to do. She said, I got to leave, Gary. And then my father talked her into coming out to California. In 1958, with just $7 in her pocket, Annie Pearl and her son Lyman arrived off a Greyhound bus and moved in with one of Annie's brothers. They'd be starting a new life in Los Angeles. Even without much money, part of that life would include baseball. Later in his life, Lyman described his first memories of the game to a reporter. In this episode, quotes from Lyman that were not recorded by audio or video will be read by his brother-in-law, Vincent Brooks, like this one from the Sporting News. When I was eight years old, my mother bought me my first glove, but someone stole it the next day. My mother wasn't about to buy me another one, but a friend of hers gave her a replacement. Unfortunately, it was a left-hander's model, and I'm right-handed. They were part of a huge migration in the middle decades of the century, a time when nearly half of America's black population moved away from the southern states to points north and west, to cities like L.A., 
where his mother found a job working at a local hospital. Upon settling there, in a neighborhood not far from the L.A. Coliseum, Lyman was surrounded by his mother's side of the family. His talent as an athlete was immediately clear to his cousins, like Anthony. When we used to play catch with the baseball, he used to throw the ball so hard. And I used to like say, hey, man, you try to break my hand? And he said, no, that's just the way I throw it. His whole demeanor when he played baseball, you knew he was going to become a professional and he was going to probably be one of the best. Wilmer Aaron grew up with Lyman in the same Vermont Square neighborhood in L.A. He remembers the times they played together. You know, when we were uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, and we were playing a lot of baseball then, used to come by the house, uh, we hit tennis balls, uh, hit rubber balls, uh, we hit rocks in the alley. We grew up in a very uh, athletic atmosphere. For all the talent he flashed, Lyman was skinny and small. At his high school, Manual Arts, he was stuck on the junior varsity his first three years. He wouldn't make varsity till he was a senior. In the spring of 1968, he shined, hitting 375 and named all city in Los Angeles. Wilmer and Lyman were teammates. When I think back on Lyman Bostock, he did some things naturally, naturally right. And what I mean by that is, what I understand about hitting now, he was doing at an early age. He was keeping his hands to the inside part of the ball. He had the timing mechanism with the leg lift up, and he was killing left center field, okay? And he really became a more pronounced ball player when he got bigger and stronger. By the time Lyman had grown and blossomed into a true hitter, most colleges had already filled out their rosters. He was offered just a single scholarship to play college baseball. It was the fall of 1968, a turbulent time in LA and the rest of the country. The next couple of seasons would take Lyman far away from the baseball diamond and into places he'd never imagined, including jail. Anyone who's lived in the 2020s in America can, in some ways, relate easily to 1968, a year of upheaval and tumult that threatened to rip the country apart. It was a year of war. Marines have tripled the number of troops guarding the outpost, and they've moved up more battalions to be ready to reinforce. Of assassination. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years old and a Nobel Peace Prize winner, and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the United States, was assassinated in Memphis tonight. Of riot. And of the Black Power Movement, symbolized by an iconic moment at the Olympic Games in Mexico City when the African-American sprinters Tommy Smith and John Carlos 
each raised a black-gloved fist on the medal stand during the playing of the national anthem. Before the Olympics, there was a furor in this country over a threatened boycott by Negro athletes. Then most of them decided that participation in the Olympic would further the cause of civil rights in this country and abroad. Lyman's own high school and his neighborhood had been the sites of major protests in the 1960s. This was the time and backdrop when Lyman came to college, a freshman on scholarship to play baseball at San Fernando Valley State, now known as Cal State Northridge. This is Adam Powell, the author of a biography on Lyman. The $75 scholarship uh, per semester, which um, basically included tuition and books. Uh, There was a $25 book deal and $50 tuition per semester. And so a kid could go to college uh, in the fall of 1968 at San Fernando Valley State for $150 a year. Even then, there were eighteen, about 18,500 students on that campus, which was a pretty healthy number, but only 200 of those uh, were African-American. Arriving on campus, Lyman lived in Northridge Hall, the college's first co-ed dorm. And in his first weeks there, he met another freshman from Los Angeles, a young woman who caught his eye, Yuvine Brooks. First week of uh, orientation, I had just got checked in and met my roommate, who is still my best friend to this date. And uh, we were just walking across the lobby and this voice is chatting. Um, and we just kind of looked across the room and was like, well, oh, okay. And I just kept walking. More than 50 years later, Yuvine recalls their immediate spark. He was very charismatic, and you did not notice him. But he wasn't, like, caught up in, like, his looks or anything. He was just... Um, very authentic and real, and I know it sounds corny, but it was almost like it was in slow motion, the eye, the connection. Um, very kind of eerie, in a sense. I think we were supposed to, like, meet or something. Although Lyman came to college to play baseball and had dreams of reaching the major leagues, he quickly joined the Black Student Union, a group fighting for greater opportunity and access for students of color, more diversity in the faculty, and racial equality across campus. This is Dr. Jerome Walker, who was a student at that time, from the documentary, The Storm at Valley State. I told him I wanted to organize a black student union, and it was like, uh, what? Yuvine understood why Lyman wanted to be part of it because it was the right thing to do. He believed in the cause. I mean, why wouldn't we want to have equal access and being able to have curriculum, you know, so that everyone could know and understand across ethnicities? Why wouldn't we want to make sure people are treated fairly and equally? I mean, it's just the thing to do. He had opinions, he had action, he had passion. We call him a soldier. (laughs) 
Reggie Williams was a classmate of Lyman's at Valley State. We just fell in line on Tamisha Williams. Wanted a better education, wanted some black studies, players on the football team and uh, the baseball teams. There wasn't that many of us. And I can remember going in the weight room to work out by myself. And be three or four white guys in there, and they look at me, they get up and walk out. And I had never experienced overt dislike or distrust or, or racist or whatever you want to call it until I got there because I've always been, you know, in the black neighborhood. So that was an eye-opening experience. As for baseball, friends and members of the Black Student Union told Lyman, it was a white man's game. It was a waste of time. It didn't compare to the greater causes they were fighting for. Again, the author, Adam Powell. When Lyman got to college, he was really fed with a lot of ideas about why um, baseball was really not for him. Baseball was the white man's game. It was a rich man's game. Why would you want to spend time playing this rich man's, white man's game when there's so many other more important issues at stake for our race, for our people? Yuvine remembers the pressure from Lyman's peers. It just was seen as a non-Black sport. It wasn't a popular sort of sport coming up. It was like he would be a sellout if he, if he played that sport. I didn't even really know initially that he played baseball this first year. I mean, because everything was around, you know, social justice issues, the movement on campus. Monday, November 4th, 1968, was the day before the presidential election when Richard Nixon would win the White House over Hubert Humphrey. And when Ronald Reagan was in his first term as governor of California, leading a crackdown against campus protest and unrest across the state. It was also the day when things changed at Valley State, for the Black Student Union and for Lyman. This campus was torn apart. When I arrived, I found that students were divided among themselves. Students were divided from faculty, faculty were split. The spark actually came a few days before on a football field on campus. Here's Dr. Jerome Walker again from the documentary, The Storm at Valley State. There was a freshman football game and we had some black students that were playing. And one of the students, something happened on the field and one of the assistant coaches or something literally kicked this young man in his behind. Literally kicked him in his behind, on the field, in front of his teammates and spectators. In the wake of the game and the white coach kicking the black player, the Black Student Union, including Lyman, demanded a meeting with the athletic director that Monday. Soon, more students headed to the administration building, some outside, some making their way up the floors, demanding to see Dr. Paul Plumgren, the acting university president. The situation escalated from there, as Adam Powell describes. 
There were about 300 students out there. Uh, it was not just uh, the Black Student Union. There was uh, the Students for Democratic Society, Students for Education, Action and Change. And ultimately, they assisted the Black Student Union in, in taking over uh, pretty much the entire building. They kind of corralled the lower floors while the, the Black Student Union was um, upstairs um, handling the upper floors where the administrators were. So this thing lasted about four hours. The acting president Blomgren was presented with a list of demands by the Black Student Unions, which included several different uh, requests, one of which that they would receive amnesty for what they were doing that day. Uveen recalls the day. They went up to the fourth floor. They asked to speak to the president. They were told he wasn't in. And they said, well, we'll just wait, <laughs> pretty much. Then uh, they found that he was there. And so, magically, he agreed to meet, meet with them. From there, I don't know, it's just, you read different stories, but, you know, they say that um, some of the secretaries, the pe they, people were held against their will there. I don't know. I think only those that were there will actually know the true story. What started with a list of demands grew into what one Valley State Administrator claimed to be a violent takeover of the building, leading to a student sit-in and campus protest. The day after, nearly 100 police officials swept through campus looking for those responsible, including Lyman. They were there illegally and trespassing, and so the next day on campus, there were these John Doe warrants, and so they came in and just picked up everyone that they thought was involved and arrested them. The college administration had promised the protesters amnesty, but went back on that pledge. The acting president said he was under duress when making the agreement. As a result, 33 students were taken into custody, Lyman among them. He was charged with multiple felonies, including kidnapping, assault with intent to commit bodily harm, robbery, and conspiracy, even though there was no proof of any violence during the protest. Investigators considered him to be among the group's leaders. He'd come to Valley State to play baseball, now, he faced a future where he might never see a field again. Where do I go? What do I do? How can I make the most of my life? Um, how can I have more of an impact? On the next episode of Wesley, Lyman's dedication to the cause would cost him a high price. We had never been in jail, and suddenly you're thrown in there with hardened criminals. I think to coin the phrase, it scared him straight. That's next time on Wesley. Wesley is produced for Fox Sports Audio in conjunction with Blue Duck Media. It's reported, written, and hosted by me, Tom Rinaldi. Executive producers are Eric Shanks, Charlie Dixon, and me for Fox Sports. 
Gabe Goodwin and Scott Turkin for Blue Duck Media. Sound mixing and original scoring from Steve Porter and Porterhouse Media. Editing and sound design by Mike Goldstein. Audio field recording from Alan Chow. The terrific Jen Roman is our producer and production manager. Script consulting and research by the beautiful mind of David Sabino. Additional production and research from the quartermaster, Quincy Tucker. Production support from Jonathan Berger, Matt Engelberg, Michael Vader, and Ben Redmond. Special thanks to Yuveen Whistler and her family, the Lyman Bostock family, the incomparable Willie Weinbaum, Major League Baseball, and ESPN. 